Romans 1, 1 through 7, and let me pray. Lord, Father, God, we are going to dig into your word to hear what you would have to say to us, so please don't let me get in the way. Um, We want to hear from you. Please soften our hearts, God, so that we are good soil and not coming to this pridefully, thinking we know it all, but wanting to be blessed by you and your truth. You are amazing, God. It's amazing that you've given us your word, source of truth that we can depend on, that um, when we depend on it, we will never be put to shame. So thank you for this time that we get to open up and dig in. We love you. Thank you. Amen. So first, some background. This is a, this is a big, weighty book. We just started teaching it. I just started teaching through it at Restoration on Wednesday nights, and I thought about it for a while, and I realized that the only reason I, I didn't start teaching it before was fear, but that has no place when it comes to learning from God's word. Uh, this is a comprehensive study on the gospel, the book of Romans. Paul uh, wrote it in, we guess, in the mid to late 50s, um, and scholars guess that it was delivered to Rome in the late 50s. But here's some interesting background that is essential to understanding this letter, because a letter is written by someone to someone about something, Right? And we need to understand the history of this in order to understand the authorial intent of this and why Paul wrote it. So we need this background. In AD 59, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism, which reliably so because it was mostly Jews that were Christians. So they were kicked out in AD 49. And a few years later, when... um, I forget exactly what happened. They were allowed to come back. Um, I mean, I know Nero took over in AD 54, Um, So maybe it was Claudius' death that opened the gates again. But everybody started coming back home. But while the Jews were gone, the church didn't just disappear. The gospel in Rome didn't just disappear, but it did become more Gentile. So the Jewish Christians coming back home came to a more Gentile church, and that caused uh, a bit of tension. And so there's a theme running throughout Romans about unity and the unity Jews and Gentiles should have in the gospel. The gospel is our common ground. The gospel is our ultimate common ground. And if you're a part of a life group, you've seen that, I'm sure. The gospel is our common ground. And so Paul wrote to people he didn't know, except for a few people he mentions by name in chapter 16, but he wrote about what he did know, which is the gospel. And Paul, um, Paul wrote about God and God's rescue plan for mankind. And more than anything, Romans is about God. The word God appears in Romans 153 times, an average once every 46 words, more frequently than any other New Testament book. So important, so important. It is about God, first and foremost. And the highest purpose of Paul's writing in Romans was to preach the gospel and strengthen the church. In verse 11 of chapter one, he talks about how he he longs to see them to impart some spiritual gift to them so they will be established. That word established also can be translated accurately as strengthened. And what is Paul's spiritual gift? It's preaching the gospel. Paul wants to go and preach the gospel to them to help strengthen them it also goes the other way. He wants, to be, he wants to be blessed by their spiritual gifts. Paul's not a one-man body of Christ. He's just a part of it. And, and he longs to go to strengthen them and be strengthened. And also in verse uh, 15, he says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And it's so important also to remember the background of this because he's writing to believers about the gospel. Writing to believers about the gospel. Then he does something else uh, 
that's interesting because Paul likes to break rules. Um, if you've ever looked at one of his run-on sentences, you understand. Um, I'm about to preach one. But <clears throat> uh, he, um, he eschews standard letter-writing practices when he writes this. So back then, the way to write a letter wasn't the way we write a letter where you put, um, you know, dear so-and-so at the top, you say your thing, and then you write, you know, sincerely so-and-so. What you would do is you would say your name in a, in a brief title or identifier about yourself. You'd say to so-and-so and a brief thing about them. And then you'd say a greeting, a salutation. Paul usually uses grace to you and peace, grace and peace. But Paul, I think because he's writing to people he doesn't know and don't, don't know him, in between me, Paul, and you Romans, has this just incredibly thoughtful and deep gospel proclamation. Incredibly deep, incredibly thoughtful, and comprehensive to the point that this, is, this has to be divine. God is so good at taking big things and simplifying them. Like when Jesus summarized the law and the prophets, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Only God can simplify so much into just so little. And so we get so much in so little but because it's Paul, it, um, well, in the Holy Spirit, there's, there's so much there. Uh, but I thought this was funny. Second uh, Peter 3.15 and 16, Paul ta- uh, Peter talks about Paul. And he says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. I feel you, Peter. <laughs> I feel you. So even his introduction merits study. So deep and so poignant. Um, so we're gonna, I'm gonna read this and let's, let's dig in to just this first sentence of the book of Romans. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to make you a promise right now. We're not going to get to everything that's in here. <laughs> but we're going to make a good showing of it. Paul first identifies himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. A bond servant of G- Jesus Christ before identifying himself as an apostle. He relates to himself. He identifies himself in relation to Christ. This word doulos, doulos, adequately translated as slave, um, but we're not going to use the word slave because that leaves a bad taste in our mouth, and and, and rightly so. Uh, The most common experience we've had in modern times is the involuntary slavery. The most common uh, um, experience people of all generations have had of slavery is this involuntary malicious slavery. But slavery in the first century Roman Empire was not always compulsory. One could trade years of slavery to pay for a debt or atone for a crime. And so this this phrase, bondservant, doulos, is not this this unwillingness or or, uh, malicious bondage. This is a willing slave to a good master who has entirely given up their freedom in order to attain something far better, namely the service of that good master. This is doulos, bondservant. 
And I heard someone teach once that, the, um, that when someone was finally freed from that, that term of slavery to pay off a debt or a crime or whatever it may be, and they wanted to return to their master, they wanted to become a bondservant, they, their master would take a, a nail and drive it through their ear into the door, and so they'd have this permanent mark. And that wasn't a shame. It wasn't like, oh, you're a slave for life, huh? It was like, wow, you have a master so good that you stayed with him and committed your life to them. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. A slave by choice. And putting this identification first is essential as Paul seeks to serve God in everything, including this letter. In Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He is first and foremost a bondservant and then an apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent with a purpose, like a messenger. The 12 disciples were called out and given a mission. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4.19 Called out and given a mission. And those guys were separate from the 72 disciples and the multitudes that followed Jesus. Those 12, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, were called the apostles as a title. They were set apart for the reason of shepherding the church at power in its beginning. And it's really simple form. There's a lot of nuances in there. So don't talk to me later about it. I get it. But they were called to, essentially their mission was to uh, shepherd the church in power at its beginning. Paul was made an apostle, but one that he calls himself untimely born. And this is really important to understand the, the man behind this, sending this letter. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was untimely born. But then the book of Galatians we learn about his three years spent in Arabia being personally tutored by Jesus. Now, here's an interesting point. That as I was studying this, a lot of things clicked together. Um, it just, it's just so cool to look at. He was personally taught by Jesus, one-on-one for three years. But the other disciples were usually in groups, right? Sometimes Jesus would talk to one a little bit. But for three years, Paul was, had Jesus one-on-one. The original 12 also weren't with Jesus from the very beginning of his three-year ministry. Jesus picked them up along the way a little later. Paul had three years just with Jesus. So Paul ended up with more time with Jesus and closer contact with him, which uniquely qualified Paul to be an apostle. And the mission Paul was given, the purpose to his apostleship was to preach the gospel and suffer for Christ's name. This man was so focused on the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says he does everything for the sake of the gospel. Jesus blinded him on, a road to, on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute the church and almost literally dragged him to salvation forcibly setting him apart despite Paul's sinful life goals. Jesus picked the church's adversary, his, their, the church's arch enemy to become a believer and not just a regular believer, a specially and personally trained super missionary for the sake of his glory and fame. Jesus sent the violent opposer of the good news to spread that same good news. Paul's life is a picture of the gospel. This is so deeply personal to him. His life is that picture of grace it's God's idea, God's power, God's grace. And you can see why he identifies himself by his responsibility to the gospel that he knows so well because it's so personal to him. Bondservant and an apostle is who he is because that is who God has called him. And this God of whom the gospel belongs promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul begins his gospel presentation after he's identified himself by establishing the point that he is not going to tell them anything new. Paul is going to tell, some, tell them something very, very old. As an aside, you should always be wary of someone who says they have something new for you from God because 
there's nothing new from God. <laughs> and that's enough. Before being saved by Jesus, Paul was an expert in the law, the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament. The life he lived according to the flesh is now being used by God to strengthen or establish the churches in truth. And now that his eyes are open to the ancient and unchanging truth, he would often turn his readers to the Old Testament, even when talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according, uh, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Just like we learned last week in 2 Peter, we can rely on the gospel because God keeps his word. We don't rely just on eyewitness testimony. Yes, it's historical truth that Jesus raised, rose from the dead. Occam's razor tells us that the explanations of the divine resurrection are the simplest explanation that cover all the facts, but we don't believe it just because of that. We believe it because God promised it. We believe it because the scriptures foretold it. We believe it because we believe God. <clears throat> and all of this concerning his son, who was born a descendant, of David according to the flesh. And we're going to get deeper into that uh, promise beforehand through the prophets and his holy scriptures. But specifically, scripture is about Jesus. He is the old truth of the gospel. He, the prom uh, he promised the gospel from the beginning and all of scripture reveals God's rescue plan. And God's rescue plan is Jesus. It was first told to people on the same day mankind first sinned. That's not when it was incepted, but that's when it was first told to us. And that thread continues throughout the Bible, that's, that promise of the snake crusher from Genesis 3. Jesus said himself in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? From Genesis all the way through, all scripture is about Jesus. In Genesis, he is our creator and promised rescuer, the snake crusher. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's our cloud, fire, and water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, the prophet to come even greater than Moses. In Joshua, he is the victorious commander of the armies of God. In Judges, he is the judge of the living and the dead. In Ruth, he's shown as our kinsman redeemer. First Samuel, all in one, he is prophet, priest, and king. In Second Samuel, he is our rock. In First Kings, he is our ruler greater than Solomon. Second Kings, a miraculous prophet. Prophet. First Chronicles is the son of David coming to rule in Second Chronicles, the king who reigns eternally, and Ezra, the faithful scribe, and Nehemiah, he's the one who restores what is broken, and Esther, the protector of his people. And Job, he's our mediator between God and man, and Psalms, our song in the morning and in the night. And Proverbs, he's our source of wisdom. Ecclesiastes, our meaning for life. And Song of Solomon, the author of faithful love. Isaiah, our suffering servant. Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah. Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. Ezekiel, he's the son of man. And Daniel, he's the stranger in the fire. Come to rescue us from tribulation. Hosea, the faithful husband, even when we run away. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not even done yet. <laughs> and Joel, the baptizer of nations, extending salvation to all. Amos, he mourns for the broken. Oh, sorry. And Christ alone really prepped me to cry today. <laughs> Whew. And Joel, he's the baptizer of nations, extending salvation to all. And Amos, he mourns for the broken and delivers justice. And Obadiah, the judge of those who do evil. Jonah, the forgiving savior going to, through death for us. And Micah, the messenger with beautiful feet coming down to earth. And Nahum, the avenger of those who belong to the Lord. Habakkuk, he himself is the great evangelist crying for revival. And Zephaniah, the great, 
I'll get it together, don't worry. <laughs> Zephaniah, the great reformer and restorer. Haggai, our cleansing fountain. Zechariah, the pure son of God. Malachi, the son of righteousness who brings healing. And that's all I can do. That's the Old Testament right there. Jesus is the center of scripture. Amen? Yes. Amen. <laughs> oh. Promised and fulfilled all scriptures about Jesus. And based on those holy scriptures, Jesus is qualified to be our Messiah for two reasons, uh, for, in two ways, physically and spiritually. And first, he's physically heir to the throne. He's descendant of Israel's royal line, that line of David. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. But he's not just physically qualified. It goes on, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And not just proven to be the son of God, but declared. He is spiritually qualified as well because the Holy Spirit did something clear and obvious, authoritative, and it changed everything. And this declaration of Jesus being the son of God by power in his resurrection is different than a declaration you or I can make, whether it's bankruptcy or love. This is authoritative, and this is uh, something to measure against. That word declare, the root of it, is actually the root of the word we get horizon, something to balance our future off of, right? It's the declaration. It's a standard to follow. He is declared the son of God Jesus' resurrection is the single most important event ever to happen, ever. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among, you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. And praise God that his deity has been declared. Amen? The resurrection, we can stand on it because of who God is. And then also because it's historical fact. Notice also the work of the Spirit here because the Trinity, the whole Trinity participates in the gospel. The gospel is God's and he sent Jesus and Jesus lived and died and the Holy Spirit is that life giver and life restorer. <clears throat> so Jesus is our King and Son of God. He is qualified because of his physical heritage and proven divine nature. All scripture is about him because Jesus is Lord and through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Because it's only through Jesus that we receive grace. Jesus was the one who was sent into the world to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was the one who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death as the propitiation for our sin. It was Jesus who beat death and paved the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And if he hadn't done that, grace would be unavailable to us and forever out of reach. The infinite divide between us and God would be unspannable. But it's not just that. He doesn't just bridge the gap, bring us to life. He doesn't just extend his grace, but he puts us on a path and gives us purpose. Now, he uses the word apostleship here. In verse 1, he talks about himself as an apostle. And in verse 5, he talks about our apostleship. Um, you know, he, he, he says, "...through whom we have received grace and apostleship." to bring about the obedience of faith. And he's not saying that everyone here has been personally tutored by Jesus. He's not saying everyone here walked with Jesus on earth and was faithful through that time. He is saying, um, he's using a different form of this, of this word. Um, in verse one, it's, it's that title, the messenger. 
But here, he's talking about how we have absolutely been given a mission. We've been called out of the world for a holy purpose, sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose. Grace and apostleship, set apart for a holy purpose. This is our job on earth, is to, be, to do that. But in verse one, it's apostolos, um, for those Greek nerds there. It's like a messenger being sent. And here in verse five, we see um, apostole, which is like the sending off of a fleet. It's, it's, it's the same heart of sending with a purpose, but it's, it's broader. It's like the sending off of a fleet rather than a single messenger. We are that fleet sent to fulfill the great commission to make disciples who make disciples and all of us to obey God in order to give him glory. That's our job. That is our, that is our mission. It gets more specific than that. Um, and we'll get to that right there. <clears throat> But God gives us freedom from sin and our grace and purpose and apostleship. And that brings about obedience like this verse says. So, so now I, and I want you guys to notice that faith and obedience are absolutely connected. One thing that um, I loved about this church when we were looking for a, a place to go and serve was, your, was, was the, the mission statement. Glorifying God by loving and obeying him. It doesn't get more clear than that. That's just gospel right there. I love that. True faith is obedient faith. But obedience is not just pursuing right living and fleeing from sin. It's absolutely that. But it's, it's, a, it's also about purpose and obeying orders. We have been created specifically for good works for each believer. Each of us have been created for specific good works that we should walk in them and we are specifically equipped to do those things, been gifted by God in his varied grace. First Peter 4.10 says, use your gifts. Use your gifts as good stewards of God's varied grace. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not just about not doing that and doing that. It's about mission and purpose. It's about mission and purpose, a specific purpose that you have that only you can do because no one else is you. God's infinite grace equips us all differently. See, his grace and obedience are still bound up there. We see 1 Peter 4.10, how he puts those together, that we have, that we're stewards of God's grace, and so we need to use our gifts to serve. Faith, uh, grace and apostleship, right there. Obedient faith. And all of this, all of this, at the end of verse five, it says our purpose for all of this, including the gospel, including our salvation itself, is for his name's sake. All of this is for the glory of God. Our salvation is given to us to glorify God above all else. Why would God do anything else? Is anything or anyone deserving of even the smallest amount of glory while God exists? Easy question, right? Our ability to glorify God was lost at the fall of humankind. It's the reason why Jesus made peace between us and God with his blood on the cross. And appropriately, it's the pinnacle of Paul's gospel message here. Ooh, so deep, right? You guys can feel it. Every, every, every verse, every clause can be its own standalone thing. There's an introduction that's nearly over. And he says, among whom you are also, you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul confirms their calling. He confirms their calling, even though the church in Rome wasn't planted by one of the 
12, 12 apostles. <clears throat> Even though it was messy and they battled between who was right, Gentiles following Jesus and what he preached or the Jews following their heritage of the promise. Paul knows that their faith is evident. He even mentions it in verse eight. First, I thank God my, through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world even though in 49 they'd all been kicked out um, and then they're coming back into this messiness. What was heard what was, what was coming to Paul's ears was not messiness, was faithfulness. They're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> so if you feel messy, that's okay. You can still be faithful. Paul is confirming their calling. It was important for him to include that tension between Jews and Gentiles is, is, is not new in the church. Um, and I don't want you to forget that Paul is writing this to believers. He said himself, um, to you among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not the door we walk through to get to Christianity and then we leave it behind. That was just that thing that we got that was like God taking our training wheels off. You know, it's not like when we're a dirty masterpiece that God just wipes off and that's the gospel and now we just get to live our best life and be our best self. The gospel is not the door we walk through. I've told the students, uh, I use this analogy and it's broken so don't dig too deep into it, but it's more like the tunnel we get to glory. The gospel, yeah, we walk through justification into sanctification. We're not leaving the gospel behind. We still need to depend on God and his grace, giving us spiritual gifts and giving us the strength to obey and giving us um, insight into what his, what his word has for us. We still move forward based on that foundation of the gospel. It is our foundation, our rudiments, our fundamentals of faith. I remember being a kid going to uh, Safeco Field to watch the Mariners play and noticing them playing catch before. Um, and I always thought that was like just for fun. Like we got time before the game starts. You guys want to have a catch? Um, but why are they doing that? They're warming up. And what are they warming up with? Not advanced techniques. They're warming up with throwing and catching. That's, all good you, that's like the first thing you teach kids about baseball. And these professionals who've been playing for so long at such a high level are practicing throwing and catching. My Uncle Tim plays a blues guitar. Crazy good. Really talented guy. He's got a beautiful ear and also a lot of skill that he's worked really hard on. He practices scales still. Like that's what you learn. No, 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 no. He still does that because it's the basics, the foundation. That's the foundation. You don't move past that. You build on top of that. And as believers, our throwing and catching, our scales, is meditating on the gospel. Because what else are you going to find in the word of God except stuff that's about the gospel? That's our rudiment. That's our foundation. Paul's writing to these people so they can be strengthened, not apart from the gospel, but by the gospel, because of the gospel. Everybody needs reminders of what God has done for us. It's this kindness that leads us to repentance, absolutely, at first, and then also continuing. You remember the kindness of God and how 1 John 1, 9 says he's faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see in 1 Peter 4, 10, like I said earlier, we've got, we're stewards of God's varied grace. He gives us so much. It would be enough. It would be more than enough. It would be too much even to give us salvation. But to give us so much more on top of that is astounding. And when we focus on the gospel, when we remember our grace and purpose and seek to glorify God by loving and obeying him, we are building on top of that foundation, being strengthened by the truth of the word, the whole word. It's our rudiments. It's our foundation.
It's just one sentence of Paul's. <laughs> you can see why Peter says, I don't even get what that guy's talking about half the time. Um, takes multiple readings to get into it. And I wanted to teach it because when I taught it at Restoration, I was unsatisfied with how deep I got. I listened to John MacArthur's sermons on this. I listened to the first one in his series on Romans, which he t- t- took 10 years to get through. I listened to the first one on Romans 1, 1 through 7, and I listened to the next one. It was on Romans 1, 1 through 7 again. Because <laughs> he, he himself didn't feel like, he felt like he didn't get enough out of it and wanted to stick with it again. And Paul himself takes 16 chapters of Romans to really unpack what these first seven verses teach us. But I'm going to spend just a little bit more time because I've got a little bit more time because I went fast. <clears throat> the gospel is from God, planned from the beginning of time, featuring Jesus, who calls us to obedient faith for the glory of God and is for everyone who believes. From it, we learn not to make the mistake of placing ourselves at the center of the universe, which is our natural draw. It seems like our sinful hearts have just gravity, the weight of a quasar. It just sucks us in to our own self. We see what we see. Let me put it this way. The Jesus Storybook Bible puts this so well when he talks about faith. Whenever it talks about someone who has faith, they say it believed what God had said more than what their eyes could see. Isn't that beautiful? And when we're just focusing on us, when we're just focusing on us, we treat, we treat ourselves like the moon goes around the earth, the earth around the sun, and the sun goes around me and my life. It's an Arthur-centric model of the galaxy. But even the gospel is not about us. What did verse 5 say? It says it's for his name's sake. We serve, we obey, we believe for his glory, for his purposes, as a good bond servant given a mission to do. You are not the center of the universe. You're not even the center of the gospel. We benefit from the gospel, absolutely. But the, but the main target of all of that is God and his glory. We learn to turn our eyes to eternal truth established from the beginning of time. We don't need new stuff when what the Bible gives us is sufficient. Again, what we've been learning about from, P, um, from Peter that Matt's been teaching through. We have everything we need for life and godliness. I'm going to tell you something. None of it comes from you, but that's a good thing. When Adam and Eve had their own eternity in their hands and their own righteousness in their hands, what'd they do? They blew it. Totally blew it. I am so thankful that it doesn't depend on me because I would blow it too. We learn learn to turn our eyes to eternal truth established from the beginning of time and we learn to fall more in love with God, the God who gives us grace and purpose. Let me end by reading this back to you. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to give us this message that saves us. You are so good to send your son who died for us. You are so good to send your Holy Spirit to equip us and give us purpose.
God, you are so good to give us your word from, that's ancient and unchanging. We can base our lives on it, God, not worried about whether or not we're going to make it, but we can trust in your promises, God. We can believe what you say more than what our eyes can see. Please, God, keep us devoted to this truth, to your truth, and to your glory, God. Help us be faithful to obey, to glorify you, God, and our hearts first, branching out from there. Thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for this weather and uh, reminding us that things change because uh, you have new grace for us every single day. We love you and, uh, and thank you for all of this, God. Amen.